So go ahead and find that little book. It's actually a letter in the New Testament called Philippians. P-H-I-L-I-P-P-I-A-N-S. That's right. Maybe you're asking yourself, why in the world are we studying Philippians? Well, I'll tell you, because it's awfully close to the Philippines. No. Anyways, <laughs> why are we studying this ancient letter? This letter actually was written by a man named Paul, an apostle. He was writing alongside his companion at the time, Timothy. Paul, uh, and actually at the time, he was in prison. Paul was writing from prison the work of the gospel. He was wanting to share the message of Jesus Christ with people who had never, ever heard. And the work of the gospel was being apparently shut down. It was also, it seemed as if it was being slowed down. And Paul is here in prison. I don't know how dark it was. I don't know how smelly it was. But Paul is writing a letter. Why? Because there were a group of believers in a town called Philippi, not too far from where he was in Ephesus or I don't know, some scholars debate whether he was writing from a prison in Ephesus or a prison from Rome. But either way, these group of believers had heard that Paul was in prison. This group of believers, they were actually uh, writing to their church planter. They were saying, Paul, man, uh, you've done so much for us. Let us do something for you. And they sent him a care package. They didn't put it in the mail. They they sent it. They hand-delivered it, a Harry and David basket, just right there, you know, something for him to enjoy. And Paul... He is so overwhelmed by this uh, token of love and encouragement that he writes a thank you note. So when you're reading the letter to the Philippians, you're reading a thank you note. Um, it's, it's pretty awesome. The Philippians, we don't actually know too much about them except what we read in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 16, you can do a little bit of reading later on this afternoon. Acts chapter 16, Paul is wanting to, uh, to, to take the gospel to lands that he has never been to, but the Holy Spirit keeps kind of blocking him, so to speak. The Holy Spirit forbids him to go here, forbids him to go there, and in a night vision, he sees a man from Macedonia in his dream, and the man from Macedonia is saying, come over here and help us. And so the next day, Paul and his friends, they end up going to this town called Philippi. In Philippi, who does he hang out with? He finds some other believers. There's no synagogue where, where God-fearers are, are able to worship in public. In fact, Philippi is quite the, uh, the religious um, melting pot, so to speak. There were Greek gods that were served. There were Egyptian gods that were served. But there were a few God-fearers who worshipped by a riverbank. Um, they didn't have a house of worship to call their own. Maybe you know what that's like. But they worshipped by the riverbank. And, and Paul found this group of believers. He found a lady named Lydia. Lydia was someone whose heart was wide open to the gospel. She was someone who was committed to prayer. And she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. It was beautiful. In fact, Lydia even offered her home to Paul and his missionary team. Hey, stay with us. She was, she was a lady of hospitality, okay? Um, as Paul continued to tour around Philippi, there was another uh, individual that Paul encountered. And this lady, she doesn't even have a name in the book of Acts. She was a slave girl. In other words, she was owned by other people, but not just other people. She was owned and possessed by the devil himself. She was demon-possessed, in fact. And when Paul encountered her, she delivered her from, from, uh, from this shackle, so to speak. Because of Jesus Christ, this slave girl received and, and reclaimed her identity in Jesus. And it created such a stir because her slave owners had actually made money off of her fortune-telling abilities. It tells you a little bit of the source and origin of that kind of industry, right? 
Anyway, so, so this girl, she's freed by the grace of Jesus, but the slave owners create such a stir that they call the authorities and say, hey, this guy took away our business. And the authorities beat Paul and Silas. They imprison them. They leave them overnight in prison. They're, they're in the stocks, actually. And you'd expect that Paul is dejected by all of this, but no. You read it in Acts chapter 16. What is he doing in prison? He is singing his guts out. He's singing and praising even into the midnight hours. The other prisoners hear this. The jailer himself hears this. And when there's a divinely sent earthquake, do you remember what happens? The whole, like the prison doors open up. The shackles are all broken. Uh, the, the jailer is freaking out because he thinks that everybody is gone. His job, his life is over. He's about to kill himself. And Paul says, wait a minute, we are all here. You remember this story? Acts chapter 16. The jailer brings light. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 30 and 31, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's been hearing these songs all night long, and he knows that Paul and Silas have found joy in the journey. How can I have that too, right? And so as Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, he has in mind people that have been transformed by grace. He realizes that when he is writing his thank you note from his own prison cell, he's not preoccupied by, uh, to describe, oh man, it's so dirty over here. It's so dark over here. I, I feel so uncomfortable. He's remembering that this group of believers, they have their own prison to deal with. They have their own shut doors to deal with. That there's a culture that isn't too friendly to the religion of Jesus Christ. And so, as Paul is writing this letter, He's thinking not just about his own discomfort. He's thinking about their challenges too. He's writing, man, hey, let me, you guys have encouraged me. Let me encourage you too. And so he's thanking them for their encouragement. He takes the opportunity to encourage them himself. He wants them, no matter the twists and turns of life's journey, he wants them to keep finding joy in that journey. All right? And so why are we looking at this ancient thank you note? It's because every one of us knows Every one of us knows what it's like when life does not go as planned. You know what I mean? Right? I don't know if you, you caught that. That's a trauma alert, right? I mean, there, there are things that happen in life where it's, that's not according to the plan. That's not according to the script. How am I going to keep finding joy in the journey? I believe God wants us, just like the Philippians, to discover when, when Satan tries to throw things at us, when life itself just throws, thing, throws things at us that seem to sap the joy right out of our hearts. I believe God wants us, even still, to find joy in that journey. And so here we are. We're going to read this thank you note. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Paul does not give a, a full, exhaustive articulation of the anatomy of joy. He doesn't like describe it, define it, etc., etc. But what you read, when you read Paul's letter... He is so joyful <laughs> from prison, writing to people who are persecuted, and he keeps telling, telling them, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice, right? And we're going we're gonna to uncover this. So we're, what we're going to do over the next few weeks, just throughout the month of May, is chapter by chapter, finding joy in the journey. You ready? You ready? All right, so Philippians, did you find it? If you're there, say Amen. All right, Philippians chapter 1, 
Beginning in verse 3, you know, he identifies himself in verse 1 and 2. He identifies the people. And I love the fact that when Paul talks about himself and when Paul talks about other people, he doesn't talk about his own achievements. He just talks about his identity as it is in Jesus. I'm not all that. I haven't done all that much. But this is who I am because of Jesus. And this is who you are because of your saints in Christ. Okay, so in verse 3, he begins. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. All right. So as we read through just kind of highlights from chapter 1, we are going to find two springs of joy. Okay? Two joy springs, if you will. And the first one is prayer. Steady prayer. Notice again, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. Question, when Paul is in prison, who or what is Paul praying about? The church. He's praying about people. He's praying about people that he is thankful for. He's praying about people that have been transformed by grace. He's praying for people that he has a heart to see their salvation. Let me ask you a question. If you were in prison, what would you be praying for? (laughs) Yeah, get me out of here. Lord, please transform this food into something else. I don't know what I would be. I would be consumed with my circumstances. I'd be consumed by my discomfort. But here, Paul is not consumed with his own. He's concerned about other people. And I love that he's not praying for himself. He's not praying for his own comfort or relief. He's praying about other people. And he does this always. Did you see that in verse 4? Always, in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all. And it's that kind of other-centered intercession. It's that kind of prayer that is not focused on my needs, but on other salvation. That he prays. Did you notice how he makes requests? The the manner in which, in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with what? With joy. With joy. While he's in prison. (laughs) I love it. Let me ask you a question. Has prayer ever become merely a panic button? Has prayer, maybe it's, maybe it's a season right now where every time you think to pray, it's only because, uh, you know, this, this terrible thing is happening. And uh, this, uh, this situation is just crashing down. Don't get me wrong. I believe God hears our cries for help. I've been reading through the Psalms every morning the last uh, few months. And, uh, man, God hears our cries for help. No doubt about that. His ear is open to all of our anxieties, big, small, you name it. But I have found that when I engage prayer merely and only in a desperate, last-ditch sort of manner, I lose joy in prayer. Have you ever found that to be true? When prayer only kind of downgrades into only a panic button type of uh, outlet, prayer doesn't become joyful. Prayer is more stressful. (laughs) But here, Paul is able to pray with joy. Why? Because he's not praying about himself. He's praying about other people. And so let me just uh, share quickly before we go to the other joy spring, just some keys to joyful prayer that I see in Paul as he's praying for the Philippians. Some keys to joyful prayer. One, be thankful. Did you notice it in verse three? I thank my God. 
upon every remembrance of you. In other words, here's a person or here's a situation that is kind of coming to mind. And you know what I'm going to do first? I'm not going to be anxious about that person. I'm not going to be anxious about that problem. I'm going to thank God. I'm going to thank. So, number one, be thankful. For Paul, prayer was a conversation with God where he could express more than just concerns. He could express gratitude. I love that. Another key, be thoughtful, all right? Think about it uh, in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine making request for you all. In other words, he's not just pleading his own case, but he's pleading the case of other people. Be thoughtful, be considerate. That's another way to put that. So be thankful, be thoughtful, and then be faithful. <laughs> you guys understand what I mean by that? Full of faith. Full of faith. <laughs> How do we see that in Paul's prayer, he, he's, he's confident about something. Notice in verse 6, as he's describing how he prays for these people all the time, this is how he does it in verse 6. Being confident, that is full of faith, all right? Being confident of what? This very thing, that he who begun a good work, who, who has begun a good work in you, will do what? We'll complete it. Bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. When we pray for other people, when we pray for other people's needs, when we're thankful for them, when we're thoughtful of them, we can be faithful for them. Uh, That kind of rolls out wrong. But you understand what I mean. Even when pleading for the needs of others, God doesn't want us to be anxious or doubtful or hopeless. You know, when when we prayed, you know, Jesus, please save these people. When we know that he is interceding for the salvation of others and we want to join him in that, we don't have to be doubtful. We don't have to be hopeless. We can be fully assured, like Paul, fully confident of this very thing, that he who has began the work, man, he'll finish it. He'll bring it to an end. So when Paul is praying for Lydia, oh man, Lydia, I wonder if she's still going down to the river to pray. I wonder if anybody else is going there for her and with her to support her, to cheer her on. Or is she all by herself? Lord, I'm confident. You started the work in her? You're going to finish that work in her, you know? Man, that slave girl, I wonder if she's feeling pressure to go back to her old life. That jailer, I wonder if his household knows how much God has done for them still. And Paul is confident, hey, look, God, you started it. You're going to finish it. And as he's praying for them, he actually specifies what kinds of things he's confident about. Go down to verse 9. In verse 9, he actually articulates what he's praying for them. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I realize that maybe reading through just that first time, you're thinking, man, this sounds more like a Hallmark card than it actually sounds like a prayer. But here's, here's the reality. What he's actually praying for is one, Love to grow. Love to grow. To abound. And specifically, not just love for all things, but love for the right things. Do you notice it? Love still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Approving the things that are excellent. So he's praying that, that these people would love the things God loves, but he's also praying that they would live the way God lives. That last part, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, right living, right relationship. And so when we're praying for other people, we can be confident that God will grow their love for the things he loves. That that God will shape their life to reflect his life too. 
It's a beautiful prayer. It's a beautiful joy spring, if you will. All right? So, we've talked about one joy spring, the joy spring of prayer, steady prayer. Here's another joy spring, Paul's joy springs. Steady prayer, and here, a sense of, a sense of progress. A sense of progress. It's interesting. Um, I don't know, maybe it's just me, or maybe, I, I think it's a natural thing. We usually feel better about life when we know that things are going somewhere. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you've been in the car. When are we going to go? (laughs) Or when are we going to get there? Are we there yet? There's this desire in our hearts to know that we're headed somewhere and that we're going to get there soon, right? We all feel better about life, not just when we're getting from point A to point B, but in life, when, when we feel like life has stalled, when we feel like life is stagnant, we feel like it's aimless and it's purposeless. And that tends to sap our, our joy, right? But a sense of progress does, does the complete opposite. It, sends, it feels like we've got momentum. Oh, man, uh, graduation is just around the corner, right? Um, man, uh, you know, I'm actually going to make it here. I'm actually going to achieve this goal. Uh, things are happening. Things are coming together. When we feel progress, we feel joy. But when Paul is talking about progress, it's, it's a unique kind of progress. And it's unique in two different ways. Let, let's take a look. So we're looking here in Philippians chapter 1. It's unique because, one, its focus is different than maybe our focus is when we think about progress. But I want you to know, this is verse 12, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, a.k.a. being imprisoned and beaten and thrown into dungeons and things like that, the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the what? For the furtherance of the gospel. Maybe your Bible says the progress of the gospel. These things that happen, I know, man, it it looks terrible. It feels terrible, believe me. But all this stuff is actually going somewhere. And it's for the furtherance of what specifically? The furtherance of the gospel. When Paul has a sense of joy about progress, he's talking about progress of the gospel. Notice verse 13, man, he, he just kind of explains what he's really thinking. So, so that his be, it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is awesome. Because you'd think, you'd think that other believers who see a preacher of the gospel being chained up are going to become silent about the gospel. But instead, Paul says, no, no, everybody else has become more confident. They feel empowered to share the gospel too. This is awesome. Verse, uh, verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Very interesting. It's as if uh, in that time people were saying, okay, Paul, the great preacher, he's off of the stage, so now I get to take the stage. All right? So some people are preaching Christ more for themselves and their selfish ambition than their goodwill. But either way, Paul knows this. He's aware of this. He says, verse 16, the former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Verse 18, here's his conclusion. There's this tension, this uh, mix of motivation. And in verse 18, he says, what then? Should I complain about this? Should I be all upset about this? Notice, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. 
And in this I do what? Did you hear it? In this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. So he says, man, if Christ is preached, I am stoked. <laughs> if Christ is preached, that is a joy spring for me, and it will continue to be a joy spring for me. He sees, he sees that there's progress, the progress of the gospel that stirs Paul to rejoice, even if the circumstances and the motivations and the conditions are not ideal. So in all this like terrible stuff is going on, not just his imprisonment, but you could look at the, the situation of the church and be like, man, people are preaching from ill motivation. People are preaching from good motivation. Uh, this is just a, a terrible mix, a terrible dynamic. You could complain about it, but what Paul does is he rejoices. Why? Not because of the circumstances, but because Christ is preached. He's rejoicing because Jesus is being lifted up. So here, in the midst of his terrible circumstances and in the midst of this mixed bag of motivations, Paul's focus, where is his focus? It's on Jesus again. It's on Jesus. So in his prayers, his focus was on other people. But in terms of the progress, his focus is, is not in his own progress of getting out of prison. The pro- his focus in progress is not how well the church is doing. His focus about progress is, is Christ being magnified? Is Jesus being lifted up? Again, in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. You know that tells me? That Paul's heart, no matter what kinds of political things are going on, no matter what kinds of interrelational uh, mess there is, Paul's focus is on the cross. Man, if, if the cross is preached, if Christ is preached, I can care less about my circumstances. If Christ is preached, I can care less about my discomfort. If Christ is preached, I can care less about my imprisonment, about my not having any progress. If Christ is preached, I'll rejoice. And I wonder, can I say the same? Can we say the same? Man, if Christ is being magnified, who cares if I'm not getting the paycheck that I need? If Christ is being magnified, who cares if this situation is still unresolved? If Christ is being magnified, ah. My health may not be ideal, but at least Christ is being magnified. And in this, I, and I just wonder, can we say the same? Truly, Jesus is everything to Paul. Yesterday, actually, I, I called up a, a buddy of mine. He's a prayer partner, that, um, a friend of mine from California, and uh, we've been praying together for the last, I don't know, four or five years. It's, it's been a, a really awesome experience. And... Um, I asked him, how, how is everything? And I said, he's like, how, how is everything? And you know what he told me? He said, well, if Jesus is everything, everything is great. <laughs> I come later to find out in the conversation that he had been up till 11 o'clock at night, just pouring his guts out and praying with a couple that was moving in the wrong direction. And here he was, 5 a.m. his time, 6 o'clock my time. Jesus is everything. Everything is great. And I, I, I kind of processed that after we hung up on the phone. I, I processed that a little bit. And that's true. You know, if Jesus really is everything that I am concerned about, that means everything else is nothing. Did you follow that? If Jesus is everything, everything else 
is nothing. Every sorrow, every trial, every uncertainty, every prick, every annoyance, everything else is nothing if Jesus is everything. And I think this was a joy spring for Paul. Uh, some, somewhere along the line, I was in high school, I think, and uh, my pastor growing up, you, you met him here, Yves Monnier, he was visiting from It Is Written. He once said, you know what, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on what happens. Joy is based on Jesus. Hear the difference. When this happens or that happens, I can be happy about it, right? But what if that doesn't happen? I may not be happy, but can I still have joy without that happiness? She calls me. I'm happy. She didn't call me. I'm unhappy. But you know what? I can still have joy. This may not happen. That may not happen. But I can still have joy. When Jesus is everything to us, we can still have joy. Because everything else is nothing. Do you, do you follow that today? This is more than just positive thinking, guys. This is more than just kind of like, uh, you know, just, just uh, quieting the noise or whatever. This is about being all out for Jesus. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this, especially when we get to chapter 3 in Philippians. But I think this is why Paul calls this, where is it? Down in verse 25. Just notice at the very end of 25. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you for... I'm sorry. I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. I think that's why he calls it the joy of faith. It's not the joy of circumstances. It's the joy of trusting that Jesus is everything. It's the joy that knows that to live is Christ. To live is Christ. He is my everything. So that's why Paul's progress, when he sees a sense of progress, he can see that because Jesus is everything to him. He can see that because progress has a unique goal. Is Christ preached or not? If Christ is preached, I sense progress, no matter the circumstance. But progress in Paul's mind not only has a unique goal, it actually has a unique path. It has a unique path. Notice again, um, in verse 19, in verse 19 it says this, For I know that this will turn out. You know, he's talking about the people preaching Christ for this reason and people preaching Christ for that reason. But he says in verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Have you ever said that to to somebody? Oh man, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know it's all going to work out. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen, but it's all going to come out in the wash, so to speak. Paul is being very particular with this word. It's only used like five times uh, throughout the New Testament. Uh, Two times it's talking about people, uh, like in the disciples' time, in Luke chapter 5 and in John chapter 21, when the disciples had crossed a sea, when they'd come back from a fishing trip, and they were getting out of the boat. It's interesting. That when Paul says, hey, things are going to turn out, he's using a word of people getting out of a boat onto land. Like they had just crossed a sea, they had just accomplished their journey, and they are now on the other side. In other words, when Paul is talking about progress, things are going to turn out, he sees land even in the midst of the stormy sea. You follow that? The path that Paul sees when he says, oh, things are going to turn out, he knows it's going to be wavy. 
He knows it's going to be uncomfortable and make you seasick along the way. He knows that. <laughs> but things are going to get out of the boat eventually. Uh, the other word that, that strikes me is um, back in verse 12. We saw it again, and the word kind of comes up in verse 25. Have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And then in uh, verse 25, he says, I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith. Even though the English has two different words there, the Greek is the very same word, and the Greek word is prokope. Prokope. It's a combination of two words. Pro meaning in front of, and kope meaning chop or cut down. Progress is being able to chop or cut down those things that are in front of you. You follow that? I mean, the, the visual in my mind is a machete and going through a forest or something like that, right? When Paul is talking about progress, he is not talking about a, a progress where every light is green and I'm going to get through Denver traffic. He's talking about progress where there's cutting and chopping involved. When Paul senses progress, he has the goal of the furtherance of the gospel, but he also sees a path that has problems and obstacles in the way. Progress is not the absence of obstacles. Progress is the overcoming of those obstacles. Did you hear it? Progress does not mean there are no obstacles or difficulties in the way. Progress means I can chop those down in the name of Jesus. <laughs> That's why uh, later, another letter he writes in Romans chapter 8, hey, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. Right? If God is for us, who can stand against us? Nothing can, can separate us from the love of God. In Paul's mind, progress isn't about the absence of obstacles. It's the overcoming of them. So when Paul sees problems, he sees potential for progress. When Paul sees obstacles, he sees them as opportunities to move forward. Ugh. Oh, that the Holy Spirit would educate my mind to think that way. <laughs> I don't know what your default is when you see an obstacle in the way, when you see a difficulty, when you feel a thorn in your side. Are you, is, your, is your default to press the panic mode button? You know? Is your default to complain? Is your default to feel like, oh man, maybe this isn't God's will for me because there's a difficulty in my way and then I need to turn around. But for Paul, when he sees a problem, he sees potential to overcome it. When he sees an obstacle, he sees an opportunity for God's grace to be experienced. And I think that's why, uh, you know, another uh, New Testament letter, James, when he's writing this, he says this, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it what? An opportunity for great joy. Mega joy in, in, in the Greek. An opportunity. When you see this, when you see that difficulty, when you see this trial, when you have that trouble, see that as an opportunity to experience joy? Why? For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to what? To grow. That's progress. That's progress. Moving forward. Just because there are things that want to keep you from moving forward doesn't mean that progress isn't happening. Man, I keep being tempted by that. I keep falling to that. That doesn't mean that progress isn't happening. That means that God is moving you forward and there's something to chop down as you keep taking steps forward. Man, but, but, but the boss hasn't said yes yet. You know, I haven't gotten that job. I haven't gotten that promotion. I keep getting a C in this class. What's going on? 
That doesn't mean that progress isn't happening. It just means that God is going to keep moving forward through it. Count it all joy. Consider it an opportunity for great joy. It's an opportunity to grow. When Jesus is everything, who cares what's in the way? (laughs) When Jesus is everything, everything else is nothing. Two simple questions as we close, you know, just considering these two joy springs, the joy spring of steady prayer, the joy spring of a sense of progress, progress for the gospel, a progress that cuts things down along the way. My, my simple question is simply this. Who is Jesus to me today? Who is Jesus to you today? When you approach God in prayer, can we look to him? Can we look to Jesus, the one who starts good work and finishes it? If you can, then find joy in prayer. Look to Jesus as the one that you can be confident. Oh, man, he started this good work. He's going to finish it. You'll find that your prayer life will become a spring of joy to you. It'll be less about rehearsing anxieties and and troubles over and over. And it'll be more about thanking God for what he is doing and for what he has yet to do. Prayer will become a joy spring. Who is Jesus to you today? I pray that Jesus would be everything to you today. That you can look to Jesus as everything and then everything else becomes nothing. When life is wrapped up in Him and His glory, everything else truly you could care less about. And that's not about indifference. That's not about going through life with an indifference. Uh, who cares? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. It's about going through life with confidence. Confidence that even this, God will turn to His glory. Even this, Jesus will be magnified. Even in this, He will make me an overcomer. And when I see that, then I can have great joy. Do you follow? Yeah? So who is Jesus to you today? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm asking for my friends in this place, for myself, for my household, that you would be the one that we can be confident in. Lord, we see your work all around us, and we even see your work in us. Sometimes we wish we would see more of that, but God, we know that if you started it, you're going to finish it. If you started it in me, you're going to finish it till the day of Christ Jesus. If you started it in my, my neighbor, my co-worker, my, my classmate, God, you're going to be able to finish it. Lord, if you started it in my relative, my child, my, my... You know, God, the names that we were praying about, those individuals that we feel are impossible or beyond reach, God, please rebuke doubt and unbelief from our hearts today and give us confidence in Jesus' power to save today. Thank you, Lord, that you can turn these things and finish the good work you start. And Lord, I pray that, you know, whatever situations that we may find ourselves in, I I know that there are health difficulties, uh, trouble at work or relationships. Um, Father, things that we aren't quite sure how to deal with. We feel like there are obstacles that are too great for us. God, we're praying that we would look to you as everything. And then suddenly, everything else becomes small. I pray, Father, that we would be able to see that progress is being made. That you would chop down those things that we see are keeping us from progress. Help us to see that you are moving us forward nonetheless. Father, we thank you that you are this good. And when we keep walking this journey, no matter what kinds of ups and downs, no matter what kinds of difficulties, Lord, may we experience great joy because of Jesus. We pray in his saving name. Let the family say, amen and amen.